You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, if everyone wants to grab their last pastry and coffee and start to head back to your seats, as you do, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, Luke 20 is where we'll be. If you're using one of the hardback black Bibles that are over on the table, you're on page 879. You're like the last sentence on page 879, so it'll go on to page 880. But Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26 is where we're going to be. And in our passage today, what we're going to see is that there's an attempt to try and trap Jesus into this political hot-button issue. And the religious leaders of this day, they're angry with Jesus at this point because just earlier, just before our passage, he had got done telling a parable against them. And so they choose one of the most polarizing areas of life, politics. My mom always told me, if I want to stay civil with people, don't talk about religion and politics. We're talking about both today. So welcome. (laughs) Uh, Just like in Jesus's day, the reality is, is that this is still an incredibly divisive issue. And we're in a series called Tired of Being Tired, Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. And here's what we know. People report being more lonely and more tired than they've ever been, and they report being less happy than they have ever been. And we live in a wearisome world, and we believe there's an answer to our weariness. It's found in the way of Jesus, as he invites us to come to him and find rest for our souls. And so we've been learning together the ways of Jesus, not just his words and his works, but his ways. We want to follow in the way that he lived. And so in the fall, we took a look at his personal rhythms of life, things like prayer, fasting, silence and solitude. And in January, we started looking at his public and relational rhythms, some of these outward rhythms, things like hospitality and vocation and relational witness. Today, we're going to be talking about civic engagement question we're asking is, how do we live as Christians in the 21st century in the area of politics? And perhaps there's no other area of life that, might, that feels more wearisome for us right now. The conflict that has raged in our nation around politics the last several years has taken its toll. And you might wonder, does Jesus say anything about how we should think about this area of life? And yes, he does. In our passage, Jesus, he reframes the entire conversation And he answers, uh, or his answer silences those who come to try and trap him. They marvel at his wisdom. And so we're going to read this together. And in honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to do two things this morning. The first is to stand, if you're able, as we read God's word. And the second is, you'll notice if you've been here, when I finish reading the passage, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask you to respond to that, okay? This is something that Christian churches have done over the centuries. Uh, After I say, this is the word of the Lord, I'm going to ask you to say, thanks be to God, as an expression of our thanks for this gracious and marvelous revelation he has given us. And so, Luke 20, verses 19 through 26, says this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated, and I'll pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the gift it is to us, your people. We do give you thanks for it. And we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so as we come now, we're asking for your help. By your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when Andre Audet arrived in South Bend, Indiana for grad school at Notre Dame, he received a brochure about what it, how he could live well in this new town that he was in. And one of the things he found really interesting is that the church section was separated into churches that you might want to attend if you were either politically conservative or politically liberal. And he found this so fascinating that he actually went on to co-author a study on the role of politics in finding and choosing a church. And in the survey, what he found is that one out of 10 Americans said that they had left their previous church because of politics. And for an increasing number of people, politics is part of the selection process for a new church. There was not, or it was not that long ago in our nation, and in some areas of the country, probably still similar, but people would choose their church primarily based on denomination and the denominational tags. If you were Baptist, you went to the Baptist church when you moved to town. If you were a Methodist, you went to the Methodist church, right? And Lutheran, Catholic, and so on. And in the early to middle of the 20th century, that kind of shifted. People chose based on certain doctrines, even more than just denomination. They would ask questions like, what does this church believe about the Bible or about creation or about the future? This would determine their church choice. In the 90s and 2000s, people chose church based on worship preferences and worship styles and thus the advent of the worship wars, right? Contemporary or traditional, drums or no drums. And more recently, what we have seen and found is that there's a significant rise in people who choose a church based on politics, When people used to describe churches as conservative or liberal, that meant something about their theology. Today, when people describe churches as conservative or liberal, they often mean something about their politics. And if you talk to your friends about Jesus, one of their defeater arguments about faith is is going to be about politics. And they'll wonder, if I I follow Jesus, does that mean I have to switch political parties? What, What does that mean about my politics? Do I have to give up a passion for a particular political issue? And they're going to wonder, does Jesus have anything to say about politics and civic engagement? And he does, right here in our passage. He displays remarkable wisdom, and we can draw out several implications for us together as followers of Jesus here in the 21st century. And so the primary message of our text today, the primary message of the sermon is this. Jesus sets us free from the systems of this world by reframing our civic engagement. Jesus sets us free from the systems of this world as he reframes our civic engagement. Our outline today will be threefold. The first, we'll see there's a question meant to divide, and then second, an answer meant to reframe, and then third, we'll see a king who sets us free. So first, a question meant to divide. This is in verses 19 through 22. 
When the scribes and the chief priests sent spies to question Jesus, their motivation is very clear in our passage. They wanted to create division. They wanted to trap Jesus. He had just got done telling a parable against them in verses 9 through 18, and so they devised this plan. They're going to send spies in, pretending to be sincere, but of course they're actually trying to trap him. And the goal in the end of that is to actually be able to turn him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate at this time. And they come with these flattering words in verse 21, calling him a teacher and saying that he shows no partiality, that he truly teaches the way of God, which they obviously don't actually believe. And all of this becomes preamble to the question they're going to ask in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And the question in verse 22 and Jesus' answer in verse 25, which we'll look at later, they're the two most important statements in the passage. They are the two statements this passage orbits around and that we need to try to understand. The question is meant to trap Jesus because of the political consequences of either a yes or a no answer. They want a simple response, yes or no. And either answer has its dangers. If Jesus had said, no, do not pay the tax to Caesar, then he would have been guilty of rebellion toward Rome. And the Pharisees then would have had reason to turn him over to the governor to be executed. If, on the other hand, Jesus just simply said, yes, pay the tax, he would have been seen as betraying God and God's people, and his identity as the Messiah who had come would be questioned by many. And the tax here that they're talking about in verse 22 is called a tribute in the translation I use. And there's a reason for that. They wanted to make sure we know this isn't just a normal tax. This isn't just a tax for using roads or for selling goods at the market. This is a tax paid to Caesar simply because they live under his reign and rule, simply because they get the benefit of living under his authority. It is symbolic of a person's submission and thankfulness to him. In fact, when the tribute was first instituted, about 20 to 30 years before this, there was a rebellion led by a man named Judas in revolt against this tax. He got this army together, he cleansed the temple, and he rejected Caesar's authority, and this rebellion was squashed. And the Pharisees are thinking, maybe we can have the same thing happen to Jesus. Many believed that God's coming Messiah would lead a political and kind of physical revolution with military, uh, military arms that would throw, overthrow the Roman government. And if Jesus was claiming to be that Messiah, then he would surely be opposed to the tax, they assume. And so the spies tried to trap him into be seen as a revolutionary, opposed to Rome, guilty of sedition. And they assumed that he would say no and they could get rid of him with the help of Pilate. Perhaps totally unaware of the irony that they're trying to get Jesus to reject Roman rule all while they are trying to use the arm of the Roman government to get rid of him. But given the nature of the tribute, Jesus uh, could not just say, yeah, pay it. That's, that's, that's not possible either. The grief it had caused for Israel, their understanding of it, he can't just say yes. The ones questioning Jesus, they don't really care about his answer at the end of the day. They don't really want a genuine conversation about how God wants them to think about it. They just want to catch him. They want to force him into this false dichotomy, and they're motivated by their own desire for power and for influence. And the reality is that those motivations and those tactics have not changed in the last 2,000 years. Politics is highly influenced by people's desire for, po for power and for influence. And what people have discovered is that the more they use language that creates false dichotomies, they can actually create us-versus-them mentalities and motivate people to do what they want. 
Now, not all politicians are like this, of course, but our current political environment rewards people who use rhetoric that dehumanizes others, creates divisions, and oversimplifies the issue, just like these spies are trying to do. Here's, here's questions we might get asked. Are you for or against gun control? For or against immigration? For or against abortion? For or against Black Lives Matter? For or against critical race theory? When asked such a direct for or against question, rarely is that meant to create genuine dialogue and understanding. Like the spies who question Jesus, these questions are so often meant to divide and to attack. And just as we see Jesus here reject the framework that's presented to him by the spies, as 21st century Christians, we don't have to submit to the paradigms that are given to us by those who would claim to be progressives or conservatives. And what we come to now is Jesus' response. We can learn something from his response. In verses 22 through 25, we'll see an answer that is meant to reframe. See, Jesus picks up on their deception. So he asks them to show him a denarius. Whose inscription is on the coin, he asks. And they say, Caesar's. And we know what those coins actually look like because we have some of them today. We can still look at them and observe them. And what we see on a denarius was the image of Caesar wearing laurel wreaths and text that read these words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was an image of Caesar's mother portrayed as the incarnation, the human incarnation of Pax, who's the goddess of peace. And the inscription read, High Priest. The coin represents Caesar as king, son of God, high priest. And Jesus comes on the scene making the same sort of claims. He claims to be the true king, the son of the one true God and high priest, the ultimate intercessor between God and humanity, which is why the scribes and Pharisees are assuming that he's going to reject this tax because he's making competing claims. If he has come as the son of God, then surely he is going to reject paying a tax to a different king using a coin that claims that he is the son of God. But what we see is that Jesus is not intimidated by Caesar. He, he isn't worried about him as a competing king. See, the question from the spies assumes that the kingdom of Jesus that he's bringing is the same type and category as the kingdoms of this world, but it isn't. His kingdom doesn't compete with the kings of this world because he's bringing a different sort of kingdom, and his kingdom is eternal and it is sovereign over all earthly kingdoms. There's no contest. There's no competition. Jesus is not insecure about his kingdom. And with a fuller understanding of just the meaning of the coin itself, we can better understand then Jesus' response in verse 25. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In this simple statement, Jesus reframes the assumptions behind the spy's question. First, let's look at this word render. It's important for us to understand the shift that Jesus uses. He actually changes the verb as he's answering. The spies asked if they should give the tribute to Caesar. And Jesus says to render it back to Caesar. The Greek word behind give and render are different, and so the English translators are trying to capture that in the shift in language here. And the difference is that the word translated render doesn't just mean to give, but to repay or to give back what was theirs. And in the case of the denarius, it literally was Caesar's. It was minted from his own wealth, and it was made with his inscription on it. And so when he asks for it back, why not give it back to him? 
And with regard to the spies, since they're already willing to carry the coin around in their pocket, they're willing to play by Caesar's rules. Why not pay back to Caesar what is already Caesar's? And in this way, Jesus affirms the role and the rights of governments to exist. They were ordained by God, as we see in Romans 13. They serve a needed function in our world, but that's not all. He doesn't end there. He continues. He said, and the things that are God's to God. If the denarius coin was made in the image of Caesar, then we must ask ourselves, what was made in the image of God? And the answer is us, humanity. We were made in his image. We are his. So if we render or give back to God what is God's, that means we give him our entire allegiance. All of creation is God's. It all belongs to him. And so in verse 25, in one simple statement, Jesus both affirms the necessary role of governments and he reminds everyone that all earthly governments exist under the rule and the authority of the true king. And in light of this teaching, I have three implications for the way that we can approach politics in the 21st century. The first is that we cannot reject the reality of politics. Jesus doesn't give us an out here. We cannot be complacent about when it comes to politics. They are a reality in our world. They are a God-ordained system that is meant for our good. Now, because of sin in the world, they don't always do good or act good, and they need to be corrected at times. But as Christians who follow Jesus, we don't get a free pass on civic engagement. Jesus is confronting both the zealots who want to overthrow the Roman government and the Jewish sects that had cloistered themselves in the desert and just wanted to completely disengage. That doesn't mean that we all need to become political activists or run for city council, but we do need to know that it matters, and we need to know what matters to our communities. We need to know what policies are promoting the flourishing of humanity and which ones are diminishing the dignity of humanity. Or, in an even simpler way to be involved, we can be obedient to the commands of the scriptures and pray for our government leaders. You don't get to check out of this one. We don't just get to check out. Two ways that you can be involved, steps you can take. One is to pray for your government leaders, and the second is to stay informed. You can't know everything, but you can always know more about something, and so we can stay informed. The second implication here is, the first phrase, we can't ignore politics. The second is we cannot submit to them as supreme. Every four years, we hear presidential candidates telling us that this is going to be the most important election of our lifetimes. And I don't know if every election gets more important or they just keep repeating the phrase, but every year we hear it and candidates come and promise us that they're going to fix all the problems. And the reality is that the Christian church in America has become far too enmeshed in the two major political parties. And neither of them is a great representation of the values of Jesus. In the 2020 election, 91% of black Protestants voted for Democratic candidate Joe Biden, and 84% of white evangelicals voted for Republican candidate Donald Trump. For decades, we have been fed the lie that politics will save us from our problems. And the white evangelical church has put its hope in the Republican Party over and over again. Meanwhile, the black Protestant church has put its hope in the Democratic Party over and over again. And here's the question I'm asking myself in all of this. Has it worked? Has either political party fixed our problems? No, they have not. Now, we don't get to check out, right? Like I said earlier, but they are not supreme. As Christian, or in Christians across America, we have sold our souls to get candidates elected, but politics are not supreme. And when they demand things from us that will require disobedience to God, we must remember God reigns supreme. 
The third implication is that we cannot divide over false dichotomies in politics. Jesus does not allow an overly simplistic question to dictate his response. We cannot let these false dichotomies between conservative and uh, progressive voices that dominate the political landscape to set the agenda for us. As Christians, we can reject these false dichotomies that come our way. We can care about both the sanctity of life and humane border control. We can care about both a biblical sexual ethic and racial equity. And we have been told you have to pick a side. And we don't. We don't have to pick a side. Jesus shows us we don't have to choose the overly simplistic dichotomies because Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom. And he is a different sort of king. And here we come to our third point. He is a king who sets us free. The response of the spies is silence in verse 26. Right? They're marveling at his answer. So often when you ask a politician for their answer to difficult questions, you get a non-answer. And I, I enjoy watching presidential debates, but one of the things I hate is when candidates give an answer that says absolutely nothing. They say a whole lot of words and they say a whole lot of nothing. This happens, right, all the time, but that's not what happens here. They're not angry at Jesus for his response as if he didn't actually answer it. They're amazed at his response. They marvel. See, the spies assume that Jesus' kingdom came to compete with Caesar's, but Jesus actually came to bring a completely different sort of kingdom. And until we get that, until we see that Jesus is a different sort of king and brings a different kingdom, we will be enslaved to the systems of this world. Jesus is the king who doesn't enslave. He sets us free. Now, he does demand all of our allegiance, but it is free submission that brings everlasting joy, not coerced submission that brings bondage. And here's what I'm talking about. The systems of the world, they operate from a need for power and influence. The religious leaders here, they come to try and catch Jesus because he was undermining their power, and they see him as competition. Caesar strikes down any rebellion or revolt because he sees them as undermining his power, their competition to him. But Jesus came to bring a new sort of kingdom. And one of the places he describes the values of this kingdom is in Luke 6, verses 20 through 26. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. And jumping to verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. You'll see he turns each of these phrases around. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus here identifies four areas of life, and then he gives a statement about blessing and warning for each. Whether in the area of money, security, pleasure, or influence, the paradigm under which the world operates is different than God's kingdom. And when we think about our current political environment, so often the currency on which it runs is these four things. And we think about politics throughout the history of the world, so often is these four things. They are what motivates so many people. They are required so often to be successful in politics. And when they get threatened, that's when people do devious things. But that shouldn't surprise us. When we have trained people to want these things, to get these things, and that in getting them, they'll get more of them, then when they are threatened, we should not be surprised that they will resort to deceptive things to keep them. But consider the life of Jesus. 
He came as a king with no coin in his pocket. He had to ask the spies to show him a coin. He came as a king who was poor, who had no home to lay his head. He came as a king who rejected the temporary pleasures of this world because he had a vision to provide eternal pleasures to all who would believe. And he came as a king who was rejected, rejected by those he came to save, rejected by the Roman government who would not protect him even though he was innocent, rejected by his heavenly father on the cross as he bore the sin of the world. And when we worship a king like that, who pursued greatness by serving us and giving his life as a ransom for many, then it frees us to be enslaved to the currency of the earthly system. When we forsake the pleasure of this world, we can do so because our Savior and King did that for us. And we can experience the rejection of this world because our Savior and our King did that for us. Jesus frees us from the enslaving devices of the system so we can freely serve others within those same systems. Much has been made about critical race theory or CRT lately. And people want to know, are you for it or are you against it? And one of the paradigms that CRT assumes is that human systems will inevitably have someone in power and other people who experience some degree of oppression from those in power. It views the world through the lens of power and privilege, and it's similar in this way to other theories like Marxist theories. And I would actually say that Jesus agrees with them about the problem, at least to some degree. Jesus also commonly identifies the impulse for human power and privilege as one of the greatest problems in the world. But there's one significant problem with CRT or Marxist theories or similar frameworks. If they are built on the assumption that people in power will oppress those under them, then there's no way out of this cycle. The oppressed class will say to themselves, when we are in power, then we will look out for the people. But inevitably, what that ends up meaning is they will look out for the people who agree with them. And this has happened over and over again in history. Americans wanted religious freedom from Britain, and just as we were getting our freedom, we were enslaving thousands of black men and women. The French Revolution is another example. Poverty was rampant. People were angry with the noble class who enjoyed the pleasures of life while the peasants suffered, and so they revolted. And when the revolution happened, it did not get better for most people. It was one of the most murderous and destructive times in the history of France. See, it's easy to tear down systems and identify oppression. It is much harder to build systems and promote justice. And if we are operating within the systems of the world, then we will always chase power and pleasure and security. And when they are threatened, then we will oppress those who want to compete with us for our power, our pleasure, and our security. But that is not the way with Jesus. That's not the way of his kingdom. Jesus came to take our place. When his security was threatened, he willingly died so that we could enjoy peace. And when it comes to our politics, Jesus reframes the paradigm so we can be free from the systems of this world because we are citizens of another kingdom. This sets us free to willingly serve the good of others, even at the sacrifice of ourselves. We cannot let the paradigms of the world set the agenda for us when it comes to politics. We cannot ignore them as a reality, and we cannot submit to them as supreme. See, we worship an eternal king who reframes civic engagement in our passage and sets us free from the systems of this world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. 
We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 